Hello and welcome to the Learning from Legends show with me, Peter Switzer. And today's guest is Steve Salentino. Now, he, he co-wrote and co-hosted a, a program on the Nine Network called The Rebound with Tommy McCullen. Uh, it's, it airs nationally uh, in New Zealand as well. It's a business and technology program. And I recently worked with Steve uh, with something for Optus, um, introducing a whole lot of technological ideas to small business people. And I, I actually remembered that I, I have interviewed him in the past. So he's not really forgettable, particularly when I saw his uh, very attractive face. I didn't say rough it, Steve. <laughs> but it was great to see you. And I think the stuff I learned just uh, interviewing you for a, you know, an hour or so on Friday made me think there's lots of people out there that will benefit uh, who will benefit from listening to what you're seeing in your crystal ball about the future of technology and ultimately the economy as well. Thanks for coming on the program, mate. Thanks for having me, Peter. Real pleasure to talk to you again. Yeah. That's one of the longest intros I've ever done. I've done some really long intros. In my life. <laughs> uh, I'll try to do less uh, speaking and more listening. Uh, let, let's just, you and I were talking beforehand and, and you were saying how, you know, technological experts may well be good in lots of areas, but not all areas. And it reminded me of a story that you probably have come across before, but it's worth sharing because I think if there's one important lesson I've learned from talking to people like you is there are so many insights that we can get by having those receptors out there looking for these things. And if we are looking for them, we might miss out on so many opportunities, so many cost savings, so many revenue creating opportunities. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you. But the story I came across was when Nokia was at its best and leading the world, um, someone from the, the uh, Nokia firm was given access to this new thing called an iPhone. And they looked at, at, at Nokia's head office and thought, oh, that's yeah, okay. He then took it home and saw his four-year-old pick it up and instantly start engaging with it. And he, he, he said to his wife, we're screwed. We're absolutely screwed. <laughs> I'm sure you've come across that story before. I have, actually, yeah. I even heard another one where one of the chief at, uh, people at Nokia was like, oh, look, it's no good. What if you've got gloves on? You know, the, the, the screen touching doesn't work. And in cold climates, oh, I can't, can't work because in winter it would be terrible. <laughs> that, which, which is classic corporate group thing of trying to find a reason to something that, you know, puts you in danger. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, we're going to talk about lots of stuff that you think is really important for people to understand what's coming down the pike that's going to have a big impact. But let's just position you first. You know, if you go to the speaking agencies, they'll tell you that you're the greatest futurist the world's ever seen. Speaking agencies are good like that. They're good. You've got to have people in your corner selling your stuff. You've got to have it. That's right. But you are highly rated and I've seen you speak and you're very good at it. Uh, I didn't know that you were linked to a company called Rentoid. Uh, I, I know Rachel Botsman. In fact, Rachel and I have spoken. Yeah, I know Rachel. Lectures and she, she actually brought up lots of business. She was the first person ever introduced me to a thing called Airtasker. Mm -hmm. And also I think um, um, one of those car rental businesses as well, you know, those car sharing businesses. And she said, this is the sharing economies coming down the, the pike. Tell us about Rentoid and what happened to Rentoid. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a really interesting story and, and I had some wins and losses in that one. So I was really early. I was at, actually in Rachel's book, um, Collaborative Consumption, and she interviewed me for a book as well because I was really early um, in the sharing economy. In fact, too early. 
uh, I'd say, because it was early 2000s when I did it, just at the start of, uh, just at the start of the Web 2.0 era. And Rentoid was basically a bit like an eBay for renting, where you could rent things to and from each other, and it was. Yeah, all, all manner of things that you can read. Everything from, you know, a lawnmower to a power drill to furniture, um, cars, that, that type of stuff. But I'll, I'll learn some really important lessons. Now, I'll, I'll start off with um, saying that, you know, I, I was successful in that I had an exit to a public company. Yep. But in truth, I was not nearly as successful as I should have been. I made what I'm calling billion-dollar mistakes. Yeah. So I sold it to one of the uh, major car companies in the world, but what they bought was my back-end software. Okay. They actually didn't buy the consumer plan. Often we've heard of acquisitions where you buy a company for certain parts of it that you need. So in many ways, it was kind of sold for parts, but I missed a really big opportunity because I was in my mind thinking, oh, this will be an eBay for renting because there's so many things that we only need once a month or once a year. Owning them is foolish. Mm. And, um, but what I learned is that there's a lot of friction in uh, transactions which require back and forths, an incredible amount of friction, which reduces the margin. Yeah. And when you're renting, you don't get the same amount of margin that you get when you're selling something. It's always a smaller clip. So yeah. I learned two really important things. I learned that um, you can only rent things that have an incredibly high acquisition price. Yeah. And you can't rent things out that require hands-on uh, explanations or that the product's slightly differentiated. There's been, you know, the graveyard is filled with startups that want to rent things like high-end handbags and dresses and all of that, but it just doesn't work because there's just too much friction, too much nuance. But here's my billion-dollar mistake. You'll check this out. And this is me not understanding how you need to embrace things that aren't regulated yet. And this is what big tech companies do, and they do it well. Hmm. I had people renting out in 2005 their spare bedrooms. Yeah. Right? And I was removing them from the website because I was worried about the legal implications. Yeah, good point. Right? And yeah. then I had people renting out their own cars to be drivers and taxi drivers on my website well before the two multi-billion dollar companies of Airbnb and, and uh, Uber. Yeah. And, and I learned a really important tool. I was also self-funded. If I had venture capital, I could have fought the battles and, and gone with the tide because the market was telling me what to do to thin up my offer focus on something on the high end and that stuff just kept bubbling up and I was focused on the small fry and the breadth instead of being a single-minded proposition with something that could work. So that's my, my billion-dollar mistake and I'm happy here to self-sacrifice my own reputation. <laughs> and look, and that's why I'm a futurist, Pete. I was just too far ahead of my time, right? Yeah, and that is the case. There have been great um, uh, business innovations and technologies that are or have been ahead of their time. Yeah. And by the way, I, I can remember when even Apple had lots of problems. You know, I remember they recruited Simon Reynolds, who's probably one of our best ad guys, and mm. he he actually even created a television show uh, around the 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 reinvention of Apple. But it still took a long time for Steve Jobs to work out what the perfect model was, and when he did, boy. Did, did they um, you know kick some big goals? Yeah, I mean they always had that UX was there their idea that, that you could use it easily, that a kid could understand an example that you said. And they had the Apple Newton, which was a good idea, which was really a little bit like the iPad, it had the stylus, remember the Newton? Yeah. Um, didn't work well because the technology wasn't ready yet. So you've got to have, the idea itself needs to be backed by technological capability and consumer readiness. 
And so I had consumer readiness, but I didn't have the funding model um, and all the, I had regulatory concerns, but you know, being early in truth in business is the same as being wrong. Yeah. Because it is wrong because the market's not ready for whatever reason. And we need to be able to, see the market signals to iterate at the right time and maybe you put something in the back pocket and bring it back later but you've got to really getting the timing right it's very difficult i mean it's easy to pretend that um it's genius to think of it sometimes it's luck yeah i I can remember when these uh products like airbnb were coming on the scene and uber and i i I made the same point as you they have legal problems here and the only way they're going to succeed is if the politicians haven't got the guts to say no to the consumers who really want this. Mm. And, they, and, they, and politicians didn't have the guts, and that's why they succeeded. 100% right. But they also had the venture capital wherewithal to fight these battles. Now, this is one thing that happens with businesses that create a natural monopoly, especially within the technology sector, where it makes sense to have one or two operators because you need a system, it's like a language or a set of telephone numbers. You need a a singular system that makes it work. And so they almost have this proclivity to become natural monopolies, but you need the venture capital backing to fight the legal battles. And if you don't have that, you can't keep pushing your PR angle forward, your um, lobbying effort forward to get the regulations to fall on your side. If you're a small player, you can get, you can get whitewashed out of existence uh, with one legal claim. So in some ways it's almost like, and I've had this idea for a while. Some of the big tech firms almost have reverse predatory pricing where they will price out any potential competitor by buying them out or under, mm-hmm. under pricing. And Uber does it well. Like Uber loses $10 for every $30 they bring in. And they're doing that so that they can really position themselves within the market, get that monopoly, and then they can turn on the profit angle later as they become you know, the online and mobile logistics of the world, not just for people, but for packages and payloads. Yeah, and making it really hard for rivals to come in. Exactly, yeah, because you just you, you, you get that market uh, breadth. All right, let's just go back to um, what you've written two uh, standout books. One was called What's Mine Is Yours, How Collaborative Consumption Is Changing the Way We Live. Um, no, that was Rachel's book. That was, so, that was Rachel's book. I was in that book, but that was in it, but not didn't write it. <laughs> That's right. No, you're absolutely right. You, you should know the books you wrote, and, and I, I should know them as well. I, I just checked my notes out. Where are they? Well, maybe I'm, I'm sounding a bit like Ricky Gervais here on, on the office, but maybe you tell us, <laughs> here it is, the great fragmentation and That's why right. each yeah. business is small. And I was staggered when you said that. Um, do you... Tell us why you said that. Well, the future- okay, so, and you've got to read the book to find out. The future of business was starting small and small accessible pieces of technology. Mm. Like even if you think about Google, right, um, and, and, and Amazon and all of these companies, they all started with small propositions. Yeah. And Google, their factory is the distributed network around the world, which is us. So Google has a whole lot of small little pieces. It's all about small pieces of technology being aggregated to change things. So it's small prices, uh, small pieces of technology and distributed nodes of networks. So that's what the the business was and reduced barriers to entry for anyone. So that was written 2013. And since then, these things have become so successful. They're like some of the big technology companies are, 
I want to say they're almost infrastructure and not even corporations. We can get to that later. But the idea in the book was that small technologies and distributed systems are what is framing the world. It's all about decentralization. It used to be about having a centralized factory, or it used to be about having a centralized TV studio, like Channel 9, like that I'm on. But now it's YouTube, it's a distributed system. You know, now manufacturing is Alibaba with 4.2 million shop fronts where anyone can get the world's cheapest manufacturing by, you know, doing a few keystrokes. So it's about, it used to be about a big logistics company. Now it's about Uber. Anyone can have same time uh, tracked logistics with the press of a button with Uber. So mm-hmm. it's a distributed systems. And that was the ideology in the book. Right. Uh, and we'll come back to if, if that still works. Uh, I'll remember yeah. that's that question. If we're there's, well, there's some changes since that time because it was, yeah, a few years ago. But, but can you give us an example of a recent business that's come to market that is following that successful blueprint that was relevant for Amazon. I think, I think Afterpay is a classic example. What? They, they came into the market, did something that the bank should, could and would have done but didn't do. Started off with, with a small inference, knocking on retailers' doors and creating a little service that you could plug into websites. Had venture funding to make it, prof, uh, to make it possible. Mm-hmm. So you've got to make it possible before it's profitable. Yeah. is one of the things. Potentially broke the rules. Potentially broke the rules. I actually think that they did. I mean, Afterpay, it's quite clear. It's credit. But one thing that technology companies do, and Afterpay did it as well, is they reframe the product with language to skirt the law. Language can never be understated as how important that is to business because it's not credit, no. It's, it's a payment scheme that's different to credit. We don't have interest rates. How can it be credit? We have late payment fees and you're paying four steps. So language helps them get around the law. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they invested. That's a classic example of, of a firm that's uh, done it in recent times and from Australia. And I don't, billion dollar exit. And I also don't think that they actually collect the late fees as well. They've got, they've got some sort of company structure. So some other company collects the fees. Yeah, so- they, they, they almost, it's like factory where they, they sell the late fees out as a profit and they get their merchant fees. But um, look, I think they'll get regulated out of existence or competed out of existence. And you know, all, all the other, um, I'd be shorting all my other uh, buy now, pay later stocks. And mm-hmm. I've written about that extensively. They, they got through the gaps, but now they've got competitors with Apple and um, PayPal and Combank and all the competitors are coming in thick and fast and their margins will go down too because merchant margins for credit cards are a lot lower than uh, they are for buy now, pay later. Okay, but what do you think about Square's decision to jump into bed with Afterpay? Will that help them or not? I don't think so. And I'm flummoxed that Square would pay all that when they could literally just do it themselves. Mm. I think, yeah, incredibly surprised. But it's so easy to think that um, just because a company or someone's had incredible success that they're the bastions of all knowledge and strategy. (laughs) I mean, uh, the graveyard is filled with bad acquisitions. Mm. I love what uh, Peter Lynch used to say, diversifications. Uh, Peter Lynch, the the business writer who uh, wrote um, uh, One Up on Wall Street. Mm. And often when a company's doing well, they acquire things through fear and and feel like they're, they're missing out. People say it was a good acquisition. I don't think it was. Okay, so let's go to the next one, the lessons school forgot, how to hack your way through the technology. Yeah, so this is almost like the how-to book of the first one. 
And what it is, is the idea, it's based on this premise that uh, school is a factory. School is a factory that was designed to make products and the product was us. They round us off, teach us how to operate so that we could man the factory, right? And, or, you know, it was, was men mostly in those days. And so they wanted us to learn the three hours writing, reading and arithmetic so that we could work within the industrial system. And that system is largely outdated. And the system, just think about it from a business perspective, the system is to teach you to focus, to get one job in one industry. It gets thinner and thinner. The longer you stay in the system, the thinner it gets so that you can get a job and a singular revenue stream. I mean, the first thing we learn in investment, um, investment knowledge is portfolio theory. But school teaches us the opposite. It teaches us to specialise to the level that we can get outdated. So this was about how to reinvent yourself using all the knowledge that's available and online and for free. Mm. I mean, podcasting is a classic example. The amount of knowledge you can get, it's, it's university on wheels. You just put it on when you're in the car and you're learning. And the, the amount of knowledge that we have access to to reframe ourselves is incredible. Uh, and it was about bringing out the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial nature in yourself. Like I'll give you an example. I say to my, my kids, I say, we don't have jobs, we get revenue. A job is one way to get a revenue. That, the word job is outlawed in our house. You may work for someone, and even if you work for someone, you're still an entrepreneur who has one important customer that you sell 100% of your time to, but they're still your customer. And it's about reframing instead of trying to get qualified and getting a job and putting your hand out and being a cog in the industrial system. It's about saying, how can you increase your knowledge bank move into the new technology, create value and be entrepreneurial with what you do. Because for the first time in human history, we have all the world's knowledge the day it happens available to us. And most, most people are out there watching reality TV instead of going, oh, my God, throwing their hands up in the air, this is the greatest opportunity of all time. And the book is all about that. I must admit, I often say to, to people you know, close to me that you're not an employee you're, a, you're an individual building your personal brand. So you're, yeah, you're like a business in your own right. And I totally agree with what you're, you're saying. Yeah. And the personal brand thing is it used to be your brand used to be the proxy for where you went. I, I went to Melbourne University or the University of New South Wales or Harvard. No, your brand is you. People say, what's your, you know, the, the CV used to be your brand. Not now. It's the Google search with Peter Switzer. That's your brand. People, people don't look at your CV. They search you. So what does it say about you? Here's the good news. That's not written in stone. You can create new value, deliver new things, learn things, publish stuff, show what you've learned. You can reinvent your CV in months if you'll put in the effort and lots of it's free. Okay. So we've established that you're not just a normal person pretending to be a futurist. <laughs> you have a very big commitment to technology. Let's talk about some of the... The, the pieces of technology that you're seeing now that you think will really get momentum over time? Yeah, there's many. I'm going to start off with one that I think is going to take longer than people think, and that's autonomous transport. Yeah. Right. I think autonomy will happen, but I think it will happen piecemeal in autonomous zones. Mm. So we'll have zones where drones can do, do deliveries. Trucks will be automated between Melbourne and Sydney and so on but I don't think we'll see autonomous transport uh, in suburban areas more than a decade. It'll take a long, long time. And that's because there are certain nuances that technology can never solve. 
And, and I don't know if a lot of people know how big data and artificial intelligence works. Artificial intelligence requires millions of examples to learn from and the ever-changing nature of streets and suburbs and cities means that it can never learn it. Mm. And, so, and, and Tesla and Google and all these guys know this, but it doesn't suit their narrative and keep their share price up. They've got to sell the dream more than the reality. So, 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 so that, but couldn't you inbuild an, an automatic adjustment to that map of, say, Sydney when a new street gets created by a developer, that's what you're basically saying, aren't you? Like yes, yes. Dirt becomes all of a sudden a suburb and yeah. streets are, are growing each month maybe, not all in one go. Um, could, couldn't the, the program actually just naturally absorb it and then update everyone simultaneously? Yeah, and, and look, and, and the ideology that we have for that is the cameras actually update the database that are on the cars themselves. Yeah. When you have things like roadworks, accidents, trees falling down it's it's so nuanced that machine learning the way machine learning works is it looks at pixel patterns and pixels just being a little bit differentiated has a dramatic difference to the machine learning elements it's not, it doesn't learn by inference in the same way that humans do wet code and dry code behave really differently and i'll just explain what they are wet code is how biological things learn Okay, and we're pattern recognition devices, but we make inferences. Dry code is actually based on probability and pixel patterns and repetitive databases. So dry code is computer, hardware, electronics. Wet code is biological things. And um, we behave in a very, very different way to the way um, dry code behaves. For example, if you will show a four-year-old a cat once, just once, they will be able to recognise every single cat after that. But if you show a machine uh, a picture of a cat and you'll have to show it millions of times to know what a cat is, and if you show it a little bit, you know, different element of a cat, it won't be able to know. Like, for example, and we did this test on our TV show, The Rebound. We brought in Tommy's five-year-old to do this test. And can you believe it or not, there's a website called Is This a Cat? which is based on high-end machine learning. It's called isthisacat.com, and you upload a picture and it'll tell you whether or not it's a cat. But if you draw a picture with a cat with a pen and hold it up, a four-year-old will know it's a cat, but the machine won't because the pixel pattern isn't distinct enough and nuanced enough for it to recognise it. And so it's just one quirky example. Machine learning, it needs high repetition and very, very clear pixel patterns to learn what something is and how to react. You know, I, I saw an episode of The Good Wife, and of course, that's linked to a law firm. And I'll talk. Great to show, a lot of technology in that show. Really smart show. Yeah, and uh, you might have seen it where a, a hacker actually hacked into the the software that was driving the autonomous car, and it, and it went straight through a light, and someone died. Yeah, right. And, and I thought, gee, that's I guess possible. Yeah, and, and the legalities layer of who becomes responsible. Is it the software designer, the car manufacturer, the hacker, the person who owns the network? You have all of these quandaries, which I think with, with car crashes, in, in many ways a little bit like COVID, some of the stuff is low probability but high outrage, yeah. right? Because if you have, you know, one accident with an autonomous car that runs through, uh, you know, a, a whole lot of school kids waiting for a bus, you know, that's much, much harder to swallow than 10 drink driving deaths. 
and, and, and there's something about humans that we're more forgiving than we are of machines. Yeah. And Steve, a point you made earlier is really relevant as well. I think the, the people who think we want autonomous cars ignore the fact that, geez, a whole lot of men who love getting behind the wheel and driving the car. And I think there's the same number of women. You know, we, we think it's a male thing, but I think a lot of women like driving as well. So they are probably a small percentage who just really want to sit back in the car and read a newspaper on the way to work. You know, yeah. I think so too. There's something about control that we like. Look, I think I would like it in different areas. You know, if I'm going down the coast and I've been surfing, uh, you know, I'd love to have a snooze on the way home. But, yeah. um, but often, you know, I prefer to drive. But look, that's one tech that I think is going to take longer. It's a long way to answer your question. Yeah. The tech that I'm most bullish on is blockchain above everything by a really long way. Yeah. And, and that's because I think that it can give us the internet that we always thought we'd get and that we deserve. Can you give us an example of how a small business person could use blockchain? Like we all know it's, it's fantastic for Bitcoin operators. But how could blockchain actually help a small business person say, gee, this is going to change my business life? Yeah, so what it allows you to do is to own your own data so your data becomes an asset. Right now, all of our data is owned by Google and Facebook and all of these guys. In a blockchain economy, and it's more than a decade away, I would think, a pure blockchain economy, our data becomes ours. We own it. It becomes like an asset of like cash in the bank where people have to lease it from you, give you access to it. You'll have to give them access to it and it'll become a potential revenue source. Also, it enables us to do uh, automated smart contracting, okay? So we'll be able to uh, contract uh, things on the blockchain that are self-executing when certain things happen on the internet. So instead of having to go through third parties, we can start to do things direct, which was actually the dream of the internet. The dream of the internet was connecting directly to anyone without the need for a third party. Right. But what happened was the natural power laws that exist led us to aggregate towards, towards search giants and social giants and e-commerce giants when really we should be able to do that ourselves. So if you're operating in e-commerce, you'd be able to have smart contracts when the delivery happens, the money exchanges, you don't need that third party. Okay. So it's almost like, you know, the package arrives, that's the moment the smart contract happens because they know where the package is and the blockchain looks at that, at the parameters of a smart contract then sends the money to the vendor when the person gets the goods. So you don't need that third party trusted element inside there. Another example might be, let's take an example of a content creator who creates their own music. At the moment, you try and get famous by going on Spotify or going on YouTube. You're a musician, right, yep. in Australia, let's say. Small business, right? Different small business, but small business nonetheless, right? If they take, take my television show, I use YouTube. Right. And I build my subscriber base on YouTube. Will blockchain mean I won't need YouTube? You won't need YouTube. Eventually, there will be, and there's already some out there. There's one called Theta, which has its own cryptocurrency and its own network. And what happens is in the long run, I mean, because you're at risk and I've got a YouTube channel as well with 10,000 subscribers and I'm at risk if YouTube changes the laws or the rules or the whatever, what can you do? I mean, those 22,000 words of terms and conditions that no one read, I'm sure there's something in there that's you know skewed in their favour. Um, and at the moment, we have to hope for a to either sell something to them while we're on the screen or get a micro percentage of their advertising revenue as a content creator. So all the power resides with them. But in the future... We'll have our own channels, YouTube channels, where instead of them taking advertising revenue and us getting a tiny clip, we will get all of the advertising revenue 
that is generated and we'll have a small clip that goes to running the network. So we would be able to do it direct on blockchain. And it's the same with um, uh, example is a song is a really good example. So right now you have a song and you hope it gets a million plays on Spotify. A million plays on Spotify will get you about $40. A million plays, a million singles back in the 80s used to make someone about $250,000, the artist. Now you get $40, a couple of pizzas. But in the future, you'd be able to have a smart contract whenever that song gets played. Instead of giving Spotify all the money, you get X, X cents per play. You, know, you might get one cent per play. Or you might allow someone to put your song up on YouTube or whichever video network works, and you'll be able to get paid money direct because the smart contract will crawl through the internet and find wherever your code of your song is being used and give you direct royalty streams. So royalty streams are a really great way of direct advertising revenue to the content creators, not with this third party in the middle. That's what blockchain will do. It's incredible. Will someone create like a, a universal, easy to access blockchain um, facility so people can actually do that? Because at the moment, we, we need YouTube to give us the we'll Absolutely. And the tech's early. I think in the long run, what will happen is you'll get developers and coders that develop a network but the network will need to be, I'm going to use the example, which is, isn't perfect. The example is Wikipedia, where no one really owns and controls it. You just have enough money to run it. But that's what we need. We need an independent network, which isn't owned or controlled by anyone. It's actually the users own and control it. And this even builds on that Rachel Botsman idea of collaborative consumption. This would be a true collaborative consumption where a small, tiny percentage of the revenue generated by all the users goes in to pay for the network itself. And you will have a fee based on, you know, user pays fee. However much traffic you generate is, is whatever fee you use. And so those who have more traffic would pay more fees and the network would have a bunch of independent coders and developers who work for the network in a non-profit society. It's almost a little bit like commons farming, right? But in a digital sense, and we'll all be digital craftspeople that work on these networks. And I have zero doubt that this will happen. Absolute zero doubt because the technology makes it possible. Well, a future with uh, zero doubt is the kind of futurist we need. Right, that's what we're here for, Peter. That's why you come to the number one man. <laughs> okay, so if people want to know more, the program is called The Rebound. Yeah. And when is it on? So it's 12.30 on uh, Channel 9's on Saturdays and you can catch up on uh, 9, 9 now and go to thereboundtv.com and we've got all our episodes for our last two series and there'll be a new series coming out uh, early next year on Channel 9. Steve, thanks for sharing us your uh, insights into the future. Love it, Peter. It's a real honour. And that was Steve Sammartino from a TV program called The Rebound. If you want to know more about Switzer, go to switzer.com.au. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time! Thank you.